Our Father, we thank you for a time that's set apart for studying your word. And we pray today, Lord, that your word would be a lamp unto our feet, that you would light the paths of our lives with your word. So instruct us, convict us, teach us, and be glorified in these things during this time. Show us our need for Christ. Show us our need for grace. And show us what a great God you are with the power of your word for the glory of Christ. Amen. Maybe maybe the greatest need for our church and for any church, for the church, for Christians in general, in our day and age, is to recover her calling to be holy. And when I say that, I don't mean that in a, in a self-righteous sense, like we're holier than thou or anything like that, although we should be believing and doing what is right according to God's Word. Rather, what I mean is that we have a great need in our culture to be different. And I fear that the church is so eager to please the culture that we are forsaking the distinctions that need to be seen in the church. We need to be distinct. We need to be set apart unto God. That's what holiness means, first and foremost. And that's one of His purposes for us. It's instrumental to the testimony of the church as a whole, for us to be transformed people of God rather than people who are conformed to all the ways and all the ideologies and all the ways of thinking and all the values that the world has. And you could say that this is a pretty major theme in the Bible. It's definitely a major theme in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus reflected this theme in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before his death. He prayed to the Father in John 17, verses 14 to 16. He said, I have given them, he's praying for his disciples and for the disciples of the disciples. So that means he's praying for us. He says, I've given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So there's a repetition of this phrase in there, being in the world, but not of the world. The idea is just that, that we're supposed to be, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world, not enticed by all the neat things that our world has to offer, not enticed by all the things that might give us a momentary uh, you know, t- feeling of pleasure or satisfaction or happiness, but which offends God, not taken captive intellectually by worldly philosophies and worldly ideologies and worldly ways of thinking and valuing things. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. And that theme is also echoed in what Paul says in, his, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, he writes this. He says, I wrote you in my letter. He's referring to a previous letter that wasn't included in our Bible. Um, it wasn't canonized. It wasn't preserved. Uh, he says, I, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not 
at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. In other words, he knows we're going to be surrounded by darkness. He's acknowledging the fact that we're going to be surrounded by by wicked people if we are uh, living on planet earth uh, before the return of the Lord. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. James 4.4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What does it mean to be a friend of the world? It means to look and talk and act and think just like the world does. There again is the theme. To be in the world, but not of it. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's pretty serious. That's something that should, should give us a moment to pause and think and reflect on our lives. And we could find more examples than that in the, in the New Testament. There's no question that being in the world but not of it is a major theme in Scripture. I mean, we've seen what it, what it says in the New Testament. It's also found throughout the Old Testament. Uh, God's people were instructed to be holy, and that's exactly what it means. Separated unto God, in the world but not of it. And while that was part of what the law of Moses instructed the people in doing, uh, we see pictures of it even before Moses. And one of the uh, one of the first places we really see a, a strong picture of it is in Genesis chapter 47, which is where we'll be today. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Genesis 47. We're going to see that this, that's what this whole chapter is ultimately about. That, that's, that's the main point of this chapter. But we should remember that Joseph has been reconciled to his brothers and that they went home. They were sent home by Joseph and Pharaoh to, to get their father, uh, to get Jacob, to get their wives and their children, and to bring them all down to Egypt because the famine that was taking place around the world was so severe. But there was food in Egypt. Joseph was the second in command over the land, and thus he had the authority to invite his family to live near him in the region of Goshen, where he could be in near proximity to them, where he could love them and bless them and provide for them. But Pharaoh, if you remember, uh, he was so happy to, to see that Joseph had been reconciled to his family that he went even one step further, promising the family of Joseph that they could have the fat of the land, meaning the best that the land of Egypt had to offer. And so finally, Joseph and Jacob were reunited. That's what we saw a couple weeks ago when we looked at chapter 46. And let's remember that Joseph has coached his brothers, his, his family a little bit on what to say when they immediately, uh, when they meet Pharaoh. The chapter ended with Joseph saying these words to them. The end of chapter 46, we read, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, this is Joseph speaking to his brothers, and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me and the men are, sh- and the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. So it's important for us to remember and to keep in mind um, that Joseph is not instructing his 
family, his, his brothers, to be dishonest or, or to lie, even a, even a little stretch of the truth. No, he's encouraging them to be honest. Joseph shows us, surprisingly, in our day and age maybe, that politicians, even politicians, can be very godly and very virtuous people. Joseph is just a master of diplomacy, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't do his job by being dishonest or by sinning. So why did Joseph want them to live in the land of Goshen, in the region of of Goshen? I think there are are two reasons. First of all, he understands that there's some ethnic tension. I mean, he could have said, you know, I want you to come and live in, in my place, but his place was smack dab in the midst of Egyptian culture right? But he understands that there's this ethnic tension between the Egyptians and Hebrews, and some issues uh, that they have with, uh, with finding shepherds in particular to be disgusting people, to be loathsome. So the text is pretty explicit about that, but secondly, I, I think he wants to be able to bless them and provide for them and, and take care of them without putting them in harm's way spiritually speaking, by putting them smack dab in the middle of this pagan uh, culture of Egypt. So Joseph, Joseph's been there for 22 years. Joseph was more than capable of knowing the ins and outs of Egyptian culture, knowing how to avoid temptations. He, he was capable of being in Egypt without being of Egypt, but he's been there, again, for 22 years. Neither the brothers nor Jacob would have had this kind of experience or this amount of time in that kind of culture to prepare themselves for the spiritual darkness that they would be surrounded by in Egypt. So one thing that we need to remember as we're approaching our text today, and that is that Egypt is what's called a typology, meaning, uh, meaning Egypt kind of represents, in kind of a loose sense, something other than itself. In the context of of Genesis, Egypt represents the world. And when I talk about the world, I'm talking about not the the physical creation. I'm talking about the worldly system that rebels against and defies God. So the family of, of Jacob would prosper in Egypt, but it would be important that they prosper in God's ways and not in man's ways. Not in the ways of the Egyptians. They'd need to be in Egypt without letting Egypt get into them. They'd need to be in Egypt, but not of Egypt. And that brings us to the central point of this chapter, and that is that we must see and pursue the concept of prosperity from God's perspective, which is very different from man's perspective, as a necessary part of being in the world, but not of it. So, having coached the brothers in how to respond to Pharaoh, the next chapter, chapter 47, picks up right where we left off. Let's look at verses 1 to 12. It says, Then Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, and said, My father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they have have come out of the land of Canaan. And behold, they are in the land of Goshen. He took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? So they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, 
your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know any capable man among them, then put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many years have you lived? So Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had ordered. Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to their little ones. So this starts off with everything going according to plan. Joseph was apparently um, close enough in, in relationship-wise with Pharaoh that he, uh, he predicted what Pharaoh would do. Uh, he, he goes in to inform Pharaoh that his brothers and, and their families have arrived, and, and he selects five of his brothers to go with him before Pharaoh. Now, we're not told why he takes only five uh, we, we know that total there, there are 12 of them, but he only takes five, but we're not told why he didn't take a different five. In fact, we're not even told which five he brings or why he brings five. We, we just don't know. Maybe because he, he, he brings the five oldest. Maybe he brings the five youngest. Maybe it's because they're the most presentable. We, we just, we don't know. But just as Joseph had predicted, because he's obviously very close with Pharaoh, Pharaoh asks them about their occupation. Now, what was it that Joseph had instructed them to say? It's important that we remember this. What did Joseph specifically instruct them to say when he asked that question, which was apparently a question that he would ask of anyone who wanted to migrate to Egypt? Uh, But if you look back at the end of chapter 46, they were to say this, and only this, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers. Period. You see that? Is that what they say, though? No. Uh, they do say that, but then they keep going. Uh, they follow up their, their answer by really kind of tempting fate, so to speak, by making this bold request of Pharaoh, which was a, a cultural faux pas. That wasn't something that you, would, that you would do. You wouldn't go in and first thing, right off the bat, ask Pharaoh to give you anything, much less a portion of the land. So this could have been absolutely disastrous for Joseph and the brothers. But Pharaoh's love for Joseph wrought the favor of Pharaoh toward the brothers. And so he generously overlooks their exuberance, uh, maybe their, their cultural ignorance, whatever it may be. But you'll notice that when Pharaoh responds to their request, he ignores the brothers. He turns away from the brothers and and speaks to Joseph instead, telling him that his family is free to dwell wherever he, wherever, wherever Joseph wants. And he even extends an offer of employment to the brothers, noting that if they're capable, uh, he's more than willing to put them in charge over his livestock. But this is where it gets really interesting because then we're immediately told that Joseph brings Jacob in to meet Pharaoh. The custom of Egyptian culture was that if you came in before the king, before Pharaoh, you were to bow. 
kiss the floor and wait for him to say something to, to get up, right? Failure to do this actually would have been punishable by death in some circumstances. So Joseph's blood pressure had to absolutely just shoot through the roof when his father comes in, and instead of bowing humbly before Pharaoh, he boldly goes up, stands before him, and blesses Pharaoh. Now for us to understand this, we have to understand how significant, how how meaningful, how important a spoken blessing was in Hebrew culture. It wasn't just something that you, that you tack on. Uh, it wasn't something that, that you just kind of mutter you know, as a, as a courtesy. No, to speak a blessing was not to be taken lightly or, or casually in, at all in their culture. We aren't told exactly what he says, but we're told what he does. He blesses Pharaoh. He blesses this man who, who would have been perceived by the Egyptians as an incarnation of the god Ra. The Egyptian god Ra. As James Montgomery Boyce notes of this exchange, he says, quote, We cannot imagine that Jacob would have blessed Pharaoh with any lesser thought than that he was con- conveying on him the favor of Almighty God, the God of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. End quote. So given that Pharaoh would have been surrounded by guards and by servants, maybe dozens, maybe close to a hundred, we don't know, but he would have been surrounded by, uh, by guards and servants. And given that he was considered by Egyptians, probably many of whom were, uh, were surrounding him at the time, they, they considered him to be a god, the fact that Jacob has the boldness to walk up to Pharaoh and bless him would have been kind of outrageous. If nothing else, it would have been completely unexpected. So if you, if you think about it from their perspective, from the perspective of, of the Egyptians, it should have been the other way around. After all, they, they think, they, they perceive Pharaoh to be an incarnation of their God, right? So wouldn't you think that this incarnation of their God would be the one giving the blessing? But the reality is that Jacob, Jacob actually has more to offer Pharaoh than Pharaoh has to offer Jacob, if you think about it. It sure doesn't look like that on the surface, I realize, at least not from a human perspective, does it? It seems like Pharaoh is the one who has, or or, or still could, I guess, give the greater blessing by giving Jacob and his household a a place to to live and to survive Um, during this famine. He's provided food for them indirectly, but the things that Pharaoh had to give to Jacob and his household were all things that could be lost. They were all things that moth and rust could destroy. They were all things that they couldn't take with them to the grave despite how hard the Egyptians tried to take their treasure to the grave with them. But no, what Jacob has to offer was a testimony of God's good and sovereign and gracious providence. And that is something that cannot be tarnished. It's the difference between earthly treasure that moth and rust can destroy and heavenly treasure, which lasts forever. Have you considered the fact that we, as, as Christians, as the church, who have been entrusted with the good news of the gospel and with the very word of God, we have more to offer the world than the world could ever offer us? Think about that for a minute. We have more to offer the world 
than the world could ever possibly offer us. Because there is no greater wealth than what God has given us in the treasure of the Gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, and in the treasure mine of His holy, inspired, and inerrant Word, which goes forth from God's mouth and will not return empty or void. But you know what may prevent us from sharing this treasure? I mean, I'm sure that there are a lot of answers to that question, but one of the reasons is undoubtedly a desire to not rock the cultural boat. A desire to be a Christian chameleon. It is a desire to, to just blend in with the culture and with the world around us, to look like the world, to talk like the world. And before you know it, we start thinking like the world and valuing the world. Worldliness is a very real threat to our testimony as the church. We're afraid to speak, especially in our culture today. People are so easily offended in our day and age. And so we're, we're afraid to speak because we don't want to offend people. And the number one no-no of our culture today is offending someone. And so we remain silent. Or at least we're tempted to remain silent because we don't want to cross that cultural barrier. And so instead of being set apart, we blend in. But we're called to be holy. And holiness must start with an understanding of God that leads our hearts and our, leads our minds to desire to live for the sake of pleasing God rather than pleasing man. It's better to offend man by doing what God says than it is to offend God by doing what man says. It's sinful to strive to please man at the expense of dishonoring or disobeying God. Period. That's sinful. And yet, here, here's Jacob giving us an illustration. We, we, we've seen how many crazy things happen with Jacob. How many times have we seen how, how weak his faith is? We've seen at times how frail he can be. His life has so often been characterized by paralyzing fear and by faithlessness. And here he is boldly testifying to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, of the power of God to bless and to provide. Don't you love that? Don't you love Jacob's boldness here? This Jacob who's been such a coward most of his life? And Pharaoh's response to this blessing is, is kind of interesting. He asks Jacob how old he is, which seems like kind of a weird response to a blessing. So we don't, we're not sure exactly why he asks that, but remember, we're not sure exactly what Jacob had said to him in the blessing. Maybe it's because he's stunned by the boldness of this old man. Or, or maybe it's uh, you know, a response to something that Jacob said in the blessing. Maybe Jacob ended the blessing by saying something like, long live the king or long live Pharaoh or something like that. Whatever the case, he asks Jacob how old he is, and Jacob's response is maybe what I'd describe as uncomfortably honest. You know what I mean when I mean when I say uncomfortably honest? When somebody's just so brutally honest that it makes you a little uncomfortable, like, wow, I, I wasn't expecting you to be that honest and that forthright with me. I, like, you ask somebody, how are you doing today? And they spend five minutes explaining to you how miserable they are or something like that. And you're like, I just wanted you to say good, you know? So, so this is maybe a little bit uncomfortably honest, what, what jo, uh, Jacob says. He says that he's 130 years of age, but then he goes on, uh, he, he starts going off on a tangent talking about how his years have been difficult 
difficult and few. He's 130 years old, and he says his years are few, but he's comparing himself to, to Abraham and Isaac. But he talks about what an unpleasant, what a difficult journey his life has been. And when he says that, I don't think that he's referring to a physical sojourn, not a a physical journey. I mean, if you think about Isaac, Isaac never left the boundaries of Canaan. He never crossed over into foreign soil. So there's no indication that Isaac did uh, much sojourning or, or, or wandering around in a physical sense. Which leads me to think that Jacob's talking about in a spiritual sense. So when Jacob talks about his pilgrimage, his journey being difficult, he means that it's hard to be in the world, but not of it. He means that the trials of life can be really fierce and intimidating. He means that there's pain in this life. There's loss in this life. He means that no matter where we turn for rest and comfort and pleasure, This world is ultimately not our home in the truest sense. He was telling this powerful earthly king of the most powerful nation in the world at the time that death is not the end. That there's an eternity ahead of us. And with that, Jacob blesses Pharaoh a second time, which is significant, very significant, by the way given how significant one blessing is, to give him two blessings was very significant, and he departs from Pharaoh's presence. So this double blessing was maybe appropriate, given God's promise to Abraham back in chapter 12, verse 3, when God said, and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this chapter is actually a picture of the fulfillment of that promise in a small sense. Pharaoh blesses Jacob's family, yes. And Jacob has faith that this in turn will result in God's good and prosperous blessing upon Pharaoh. So it's important that we see that because that's exactly what's going to happen as the rest of this chapter unfolds. But how many of you know that God can produce prosperity in the midst of a famine? spiritually speaking, because there are two kinds of prosperity. There's material prosperity, and there is that in this, uh, in this chapter. But there's a second type of prosperity, and that is God's type of prosperity. That is a spiritual prosperity. And so that's what this chapter reveals, that God can bring whatever prosperity He wishes in the worst conditions. So let's continue with verses 13 to 26. It says, now there was no food in all the land because the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. When the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. For why should we die in your presence? For our money is gone. Then Joseph said, Give up your livestock, and I will give you food for your livestock, since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses and the flocks and the herds and the donkeys. 
And he fed them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. Verse 18, When that year was ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent and the cattle are my Lord's. There is nothing left for my Lord except our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. So give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every Egyptian sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. Thus the land became Pharaoh's. As for people, as for the people, he removed them to the cities from one end of Egypt's border to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had an allotment from Pharaoh, and they lived off the allotment which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore he did not sell their land. They did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have today bought you for and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you may sow the land. At the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own for seed of the field, and for your own food, and for those of your households, and as food for your little ones. So they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, valid to this day, that Pharaoh should have the fifth. Only the land of the priests did not become Pharaoh's. So as this, this famine continues, remember it's for seven years and they're, they're just in the middle of it. As the famine continues, the resources that people have, uh, the, the financial savings that people have in, in Canaan and in Egypt are finally dried up. They finally become exhausted. And so the people still need food, but they don't have a whole lot to give. They had nothing uh, left to trade or to use to buy food, to buy grain, except their livestock, their labor, and their land. So first, Joseph negotiates a deal with them, with the people, whereby they could exchange their livestock, their animals, for grain. And before you know it, Pharaoh owns uh, not only all the money in Canaan and Egypt, but he also owns all of the livestock. But the grain that they get in this exchange only lasts for a year, which is still a lot of food. One year's worth of food is a lot. And so a year later, the people come back again, uh, but this time all they have is their labor and their land. You might say their liberty as well. But it's, it's a good thing that Joseph's plan was to collect all that agricultural excess for the seven years that preceded this famine because this famine has gotten really, really bad. The people have nothing left, and so they figure they have basically only two options. Their first option is to sell their land to Pharaoh for grain and, and live, or they can keep their land and die. So pretty easy choice to make, right? So they, they choose to live by selling their land and their liberty, um, their labor to Pharaoh. So at this point, Egypt is practicing what's called tenant farming. Uh, which is, was a pretty common practice in the ancient world. It's the distribution of seed in exchange for the promise to give a portion of the produce or the harvest to the one who provided the seed. It's called tenant farming. Um, in, in this case, Joseph makes uh, Pharaoh's share 20%, one-fifth, which is actually pretty low 
in comparison to what you would find in a lot of ancient societies. Sometimes it was two-fifths. There there were some ancient societies in which they were expected to give 60%, uh, three-fifths, um, to the person who provided the seed, but um, in this case, Joseph says, you know, one-fifth. He determines that one-fifth is, is fair uh, to give back to Pharaoh. And so, Pharaoh prospered in all of this. Right on the heels of Jacob's blessing, Pharaoh prospers, at least financially. At least in, in terms of how somebody in Egypt, how somebody in, in the world would perceive prosperity. But given the witness that he's had from Joseph, given the bold witness he just had from Jacob, given the, the character of this Pharaoh, how, uh, how compassionate he was, how generous he was, at least in comparison to Pharaohs who preceded him and, and came after him, it sure seems at least possible that this Pharaoh prospered spiritually as well. But we can't know for sure. We can't know. What we do know for sure is that this Pharaoh did prosper materially. He did prosper in a financial sense. He prospered according to the world's understanding of prosperity. And while Pharaoh prospered, we do have to deal with an accusation here. There's the accusation that Joseph was just kind of ruthless here, that, that, that he, he uh, caused Pharaoh to prosper, but at the expense of the people, and that Joseph was, uh, was wicked in doing that. That's the accusation. Now, some might say that uh, the right thing to do would have been to just ration the, the food and give it out for free, but the problem with that is that it encourages laziness. If you know human psychology, that's just the way people work. It's human nature. We want to do as little as possible to gain as much as possible. But the type of system that that rations and distributes resources equally, um, if you don't know this, it actually almost resulted in the death of all the pilgrims who once came to America. When the first 104 pilgrims came to Jamestown, Virginia, Uh, In 1607, they discovered that the land, the soil of North America, was extremely rich. And and the the land was fertile. It was producing an abundant harvest that supported an incredible amount of wild game. There was more than enough food for everyone. And yet, here's the shocker. Within six months, that initial 104 was whittled down to a mere 38 And the cause of all those deaths is starvation. Does that seem kind of weird? That there's all this food and yet two-thirds of the people die? Two years later, about 500 more pilgrims arrived and within just a short amount of time, 404 out of those 500 died of either starvation or disease. And this era became known as the starving time, even though there was so much food so one eyewitness uh, who, who wrote down his testimony of this, he said this, he said, quote, So great was our famine that a savage we slew and buried, the poorer sort took him up again and eat him. So did diverse one another boiled and stewed with roots and herbs. In other words, they practice cannibalism, even though there's this abundance of food around them. So how was it that there's all this food and yet they're dying of starvation? 
Well, I mean, unlike the situation with, with Egypt, it wasn't that there's a lack of food. It's not that there's a lack of, uh, of resources there. Rather, what there was was a lack of motivation and a lack of effort, therefore. So why was there, there such little effort? Because the pilgrims had designed this system where they would pool all their produce, all their harvest, and then they would ration it or distribute it to everyone equally. And so there was no incentive for somebody to work harder. There was no incentive for somebody to work longer or to work more intelligently because they had nothing to gain from it. And so their work ethic was reduced to practically nothing. That's human nature. We'll do as little as necessary to get as much as possible. Which is why Paul, when he is addressing the Thessalonians, and there are some people who aren't working because they're so sure that Jesus is coming back any day now that they stop working. And so they're depending on other people to provide for their needs, right? They're depending on other people to feed them. And Paul's response is, hey, if they, if they can work but they won't, then let them starve. Because they'll eventually come around, right? They'll eventually start working. See, it's not inhumane to expect people to work for their livelihood, contrary to what so many in our culture might say today. I mean, what's inhumane is to enable entitlements and thereby destroy somebody's work ethic. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 to 11, that's exactly what this is about It says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which, having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. It's a warning against... Laziness and expecting other people to provide. Proverbs 12.24 says, The hand of the diligent will rule, but the slack hand will be put to forced labor. So the Bible speaks quite a bit to the importance of working, of, of doing what we're capable of doing as long as we're able to. And so we have to understand that Joseph is not being unjust here. He's not being unmerciful to the people. He saved them. I mean, they, they, would have been, they would have been dead without him. In fact, the people end up rejoicing over Joseph's you know, famine, starvation, economic plan, whatever you want to call it. In the end, they say, in verse 25, they say, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. That might sound weird to us, but that was the way things worked in the ancient world. If you're familiar with the old feudal systems of the Middle Ages, this is very similar to that. Under those economic systems, the land would be owned by the king or or by uh, by some authority, and the people who were referred to as serfs uh, would work in the land in exchange for the majority of the harvest and protection from, uh, from outsiders by the authority. So in the minds of the people, this is perfectly just. This is perfectly fair. This is a deal because it sure beats starving to death. Joseph has made himself a national hero in their eyes. Now, I can understand how how someone might construe this as being cruel. As Americans, we're probably especially prone to think that this is cruel because uh, of the history of of slavery in our country and because um, some people have this idea that the government's purpose is to take care of the poor. But while God ordains governments, the Bible puts uh, the care for the poor 
not in the hands of the government, but in the hands of those who are able to help them. Specifically, individuals in the church. God's ordained purpose for the government is really twofold. It's to protect the just, to protect people who obey the laws, and it's to punish evildoers. God's ordained purpose for the, for the government is not to be a charity. Insofar as it's possible, we have to avoid uh, allowing our cultural lenses, our cultural prejudices, distort our view of justice. Joseph wasn't being unjust here. It was expected in the ancient world that nothing would be given for free, uh, and the law of Moses accepted this principle of servanthood uh, for somebody who who's destitute uh, in exchange for care, while adding a clause of redemption. That's what you see in Leviticus chapter 25. So Joseph didn't only save his family, he also saved all of Egypt from certain death. And this is all a fulfillment of the promise that God had had made to bless all the families of the earth and to bless those who would bless Abraham's descendants. The fact that Joseph saved so many lives, including his father's, was more than just a fulfillment of past promises. It was also a means by which God preserved and prospered the nation that would one day give birth to the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel, Israel's household is preserved during this age because the Messiah is coming through their line. And so as Joseph provided physical nourishment for the people, we need to see also that Christ would provide spiritual nourishment. Jesus declared to the people in John chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. He continues in verse 51 saying, If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. But Pharaoh isn't the only one who prospered. Pharaoh did prosper during this time. Jacob Jacob also prospered during this time, although in a different way, not necessarily by the world's definition or by the world's understanding, but by God's standard. We're going to be told his household was was fruitful and and multiplied, multiplied greatly, even in the midst of this great famine. Let's continue looking at verses 27 to 31. It says, Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen, And they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. He said, swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of his bed. So the famine didn't prevent God's blessings from pouring out on Pharaoh, and it certainly didn't prevent God's blessings from pouring out on Jacob and his household. In fact, this is just the beginning of their prosperity. Over the course of the next 400 years or so, uh, there's, the nation is going to absolutely explode in, in terms of their, their volume, in terms of how many of them there are. 
And we know that eventually they are just so abundant in, uh, in their number that the Egyptians uh, can't stand them. And so they, they persecute them, they enslave them, and they force their exodus. And so rather than the years of famine being a time when the covenant promises of God were put on hold, it was instead a time when many of God's promises came to fruition and God's plans continued progressing despite what would have been seen as impossible circumstances. Pharaoh prospered, Egypt prospered, and even Jacob prospered. In fact, uh, that's kind of how this chapter is broken up. But it's significant to note, um, the author tells us that Jacob had 17 years with Joseph while they were in Egypt, which is actually the exact same number of years that Jacob had with Joseph before uh, Joseph had been sold off into slavery by his brothers. Uh, So there's every evidence that during this time, during the, the last 17 years of Jacob's life, that he continued to grow abundantly in his walk with the Lord. In other words, he prospered, maybe materially, but definitely spiritually. He grew in in heavenly treasure, we might say, treasure that couldn't be destroyed by moth or rust. So how do we know that, that he grew? Well, first of all, let's consider what we've, what we've seen in Jacob since we met him so many chapters ago. Uh, we've been told all about all these shortcomings and all these episodes where his faith was uh, as, as weak as you could possibly imagine somebody's faith to be, in which he failed to trust God uh, when he should have been trusting in God, and, and there was every reason to trust in God, and yet his fears got the best of him. But there's no such episode that we're told of in these 17 years. Now, I understand that is an argument from silence. Uh, And while that is kind of an argument, technically, uh, it's not necessarily um, as convincing. It's definitely not as powerful as an argument that has some kind of evidence. So consider Jacob and Joseph and this interaction they have at the end of Jacob's life. Jacob knows that he's near the end. And he's eager to be buried in Machpelah with his ancestors. That was back in Canaan. Now remember, Egypt is a a typology of the world. Do you remember what Canaan is a typology of? It, It really represents the fulfillment of God's promises, including the Savior, and including the salvation of His people. Uh, including eternity in heaven. That's what Canaan is, is a typology of. And so Jacob imitates what his grandfather Abraham did when Abraham made his servant uh, Eliezer make the same kind of oath with, with his hand under his thigh. But the significance here is in the fact that Jacob did not want to be buried in Canaan. He, he, or, uh, he didn't want to be buried in Egypt. He wanted to be returned to Canaan. And that reminds us of the promises of God. That he still trusts in the promises of God. He, he believes in the promises of God, including the promise of the land that God had made to Abraham and his descendants. And, and this flowed from this ever-growing, ever-increasing faith that God would be faithful to His promises and to His people. It would include from, from, being, uh, from the promise of the land to the promise of the ultimate descendant of Abraham, the Lord Jesus, 
who would crush the head of the serpent, fulfilling the promise of Genesis chapter 3. Like his ancestors, Jacob looked in faith to God for his ultimate prosperity. He was in Egypt, but he wasn't of Egypt. He didn't blend in with Egyptian culture. He didn't just blend in with this pagan society. He remained separate. He remained set apart for the purposes of God. And we must do the same. There used to be a game show. I was reminded this this past week, um, there used to be a game show called Supermarket Sweep. Uh, and it would end with the contestants uh, being, you know, it takes place in this grocery store looking uh, set. Uh, the contestants would be given an allotted amount of time to, to fill their shopping carts with as much as they could. And then their totals at the end would be tally, uh, tallied up. And the team with the most value in their shopping cart at the end would win. And so the way to guarantee that you would lose would be to fill your cart up with, uh, with cheap stuff that just took up room in your cart. And that's how life is in a lot of ways, isn't it? I mean, we're allotted a measure of, of time, and none of us knows exactly how much time that is, but every day the clock is running down a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, and we're filling our proverbial carts with something. The question is, when the time's up, will our proverbial carts be filled with things that matter, or will they be filled with junk that moth and rust can destroy? Will we have stored up heavenly treasure or will we be faced with losing all of the things that we loved and lived for? Listen, if you are materially or financially prosperous, but you have not repented and placed saving faith in Christ, you may very well have appeared to have prospered by the world's standards. But the truth is that you don't have a prosperity that counts for eternity. Your proverbial card is full of stuff that doesn't count for eternity now. But listen, if you have a pulse, if you've got a heartbeat, there's still time on the clock for you to be filling your cart with stuff that matters. Spiritual prosperity. Heavenly treasure. So I would urge you in light of that to turn from your sin and to put your faith for salvation in Christ if you've never done that. If you do that, God will ensure that you will prosper in a way that does count for eternity. You know, Thomas Watson said, This world is but a great inn where we are to stay a night or two and be gone. What madness it is to set our heart upon our inn as to forget our home. End quote. It's kind of a ridiculous scenario, isn't it? If you've ever stayed in a hotel, can you imagine going and staying in a hotel and just totally forgetting about your home. The comforts of life in Egypt can never compare to the blessings that are found in Canaan, friends. But every single one of us faces the temptation to walk like an Egyptian, to look like an Egyptian, to act and to talk and to start thinking like we're Egyptians, to set our hearts and our minds and our affections, and our desires on all the pretty and neat things that Egypt has to offer instead of keeping our eyes fixed on the promises of God in Canaan. Every single one of us 
Every one of us, no exceptions, every one of us faces that temptation to value all the things that the world around us values. Every one of us, therefore, has to remember that our purpose for being here is not to treasure and not to pursue all the things that Egypt or the world has to offer. Because these things come and go. They decay. Ultimately, all the things of the world will be burned up and there will be nothing left. And it will be replaced with a new heaven and new earth. And so we have to live in light of eternity by keeping these things in mind. We have to learn to be in the world without being of it, which means learning to see and pursue the concept of prosperity from God's perspective as a people who have been set apart for the purposes of God and for the glory of Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Our great Father, what a great reminder it is for us every time we're reminded that the things of this world are fleeting and that they don't count for eternity. We're so prone, Father, we confess in our hearts that we are so prone to just blend in with the world and to pursue the same things that the world pursues, to love the same things that the world loves, to act the same ways that the world acts. And your word confronts us in this, reminding us that we are given a call to be separate, to not love and value the things of the world, to not act like the world and not think like the world not desire the things that the world desires. And so we ask, Lord, that you would breathe into our hearts conviction that we would desire and love and value things rightly, that we would have a right understanding of true prosperity, that we would see heavenly treasure as the great treasure that it is. Help us to live with the perspective, Lord, that the world has nothing, nothing to offer us in comparison to what we have to offer the world. Teach us, Lord, not to find comfort here, but to long for you, to long for eternity in your presence. Thank you for Christ who makes that possible. Thank you that he took the sin of His people upon Himself and clothed us in exchange with robes of righteousness that we may dwell in Your presence forever in eternity. Teach us to live with that perspective, Lord, that Christ would be glorified in our lives. In His name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. 
If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper. Take me deeper.